Hey everybody, it is Carrie from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Near Alberta, and I am not at the Whistle Stop Cafe in Near Alberta. No, I am in Calgary, and I am at the Dr. Paul Alexander Unchained Tour that's happening across Alberta this weekend and this week. And uh, I thought I'd show you guys my beautiful Alberta flag shirt there. That looks awesome. Thought you guys might enjoy that. And I'm going to go wander over and take a look and see what's happening in the main auditorium right now. See you guys in a second. All right, well, first off, I would like to welcome everyone um, that came out tonight. We're going to hear some really great, sometimes scary stories today. But uh, one of the things that we really have to focus on is um, speaking the truth and getting the awareness out um, so that people can start getting involved and start spreading the message <coughs> about the realities of the world that we're living in right now. But before we get going, uh, I'd really like to open up, up uh, this evening in a prayer. So I'm going to invite Sean Ham to come up and just uh, give us a short blessing. I like how you said, Vicki, a short blessing. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pastor, I'm also a politician, so um, I can talk. Uh, just to introduce myself, my name is Pastor Sean Ham, and I'm a pastor of the Remnant Church in Red Deer, a church that was started a year ago uh, during the mandates. I was fired from my job at another church for standing for truth and righteousness. And so I did the next best thing. I went and started my own church because wow. we needed a church that wasn't going to back down to mandates and that wasn't going to back down to <laughs> And so I'm also a town councillor. I'm also an elected official. And so I'm in both worlds. And the last time I was here, uh, was very, it made the news. Um, I, I, put, I was invited on stage to pray for Christine Anderson. And everybody knows who Christine Anderson is. Yeah. 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 And Pastor Archer asked me to come up on stage and pray for her. So we laid hands on her and we prayed for her. And a couple weeks later, the media in Red Deer did a nasty article on me telling me that I was a uh, racist and a right-wing extremist and I got thrown under the bus and and I, I honestly can say that I'm thankful to suffer for Christ and for for what I believe uh, if you're gonna call me an extremist I am an extremist for Jesus Christ um, and so it's good to be back at the scene of the crime <laughs> and, uh, I haven't known this stage since that happened, and it's good to be back. It's good to see a room full of people. I've already talked longer than I should, so uh, if you just bow your heads and we'll, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We invite your presence here with us tonight. Lord, I thank you for this great group of people that you brought together. Father, people that are hungry for truth and righteousness. Father, I thank you that you were the greatest example of a freedom fighter. Jesus was the greatest example of a freedom fighter. Thank you that you spoke truth wherever you went. Thank you that you spoke 
in areas that were hard and, and that you were hated for it. And so it's an honor to be hated just like you were hated <coughs> for truth. Lord, I ask today that you would bless this meeting. Father, I thank you, Lord, that no weapon formed against us will prosper. I thank you, Lord, that you're building something that has a strong foundation that the gates of hell will not be able to come against it. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you're leading us and guiding us. And we ask for the hand of God upon us tonight. Lord, as we, as we go into this meeting, Lord, would you anoint every speaker? Lord, would you strengthen every speaker tonight, Lord? Where people are weak and tired and maybe some frustration from this week, Lord. Thank you that we have the God of angel armies on our side. Thank you that there are more for us than against us. If we could see the hills, if we could see the hills that are surrounding us, the God of angels armies is surrounding us on all sides. And Father, we thank you, Lord. We don't buy into the lie that there's more against us. There is more for us than against us. When we have the God of the universe on our side, we have all that we need. And so, Father, we thank you for this night. We praise you for it. We ask that you would bless it in the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, everyone. to some of the courageous people who have decided to put their names forward to fight for you, to fight for our kids, and to fight for our future. So we do have some candidates in the room and I just want them to come up and be recognized. Uh, we're not, they're not going to do speeches today or anything like that except for our two Calgary candidates, but um, I'd like to um, introduce uh, Corey Toon. He is going to be running in Livingston McLeod. We have Conrad Newton-Weiler, who is going to be running um, in a northern region CA. So he's an applicant right now. He actually hasn't been approved yet, but he has put his name forward. And I just want him to come up and, and, and just be recognized. Um, also, we have Bob Leone, who's going to be running in Camrose. We have um, Catherine Kowalichuk, who will be running in Old Didsbury Three Hills. There is, where's Nathaniel? What? It's right here in front of Nathaniel uh, Polowski. He's going to be running in Calgary Lowheed, I believe, right? Yes, Lowheed. He'll be running in Calgary Glenmore. And of course we've got, uh, am I allowed to announce them? No. <laughs> All right, stop there. So I, I'm hoping I, I caught everybody that is here that is running. Yes, I believe I did. So I just wanted everyone to recognize these people. They have courage. They want to stand up and represent the people of Alberta and the people in their constituencies and be the voice of truth that we need in that legislature. So if you could all please just give these guys a big round of Ricky. An archer too. Let 
the non-Calgary um, riding contestants sit down. Um, but I would like, since we are in the Calgary area, I would really like to um, give Nathaniel and Mike a little bit of an uh, opportunity to introduce themselves and a couple minutes at the mic just to uh, let you know who they are and what they stand for. Go ahead, uh, Nathaniel. Hello everyone, my name is Nathaniel Pavlovsky. I'm Archer's son, and I'm a recent graduate of a degree in criminal justice. I'm a law school applicant waiting back, and I'm gonna be running for Calgary Lockheed uh, for MLA. And what's interesting is Calgary Lockheed is former Premier Jason Kenney's former writing. So I chose that on purpose because I have maybe some naive hope that the people of that area will realize their past mistakes in trusting people that sound good but are corrupt to the core. I mean, Jason Kenney, he, he sounded great, the UCP sounded great, and look where that ended, how that ended up, right? So. I chose Lockheed for that reason. I could, I could stand here and promise you the moon, just like J Jason Kenney did, but realistically, it doesn't matter what I promise because we can't get anything done until the people that are in power are removed and the corruption ceases. So that's, that's my goal. account to account and to be a like a barking dog really in the legislature if I get elected I want to be like a barking dog exposing everything what these people are doing and to just put a cease to this corruption because it, can, it can't go any longer if I'm being honest I did not want to run for politics I'm not a politician I don't sound like a politician I don't talk like a politician yeah. Political correctness is like the bane of my existence. I, I hate talking like it, it's, it's not my thing. It disgusts me actually, because it's, it's a form of lying. They're, they're not honest, they're not saying it how it is. So, like him or hate him, I think what Alberta needs right now is someone who's just gonna say it like it is, like a DeSantis or a Trump. We need someone who's just gonna say it how it is, say what everyone in the room is thinking, but is too scared to say it. That's what I want to do for, for the people So again, I'm, uh, I'm formally announcing my candidacy for MLA in Calgary Lockheed. Thank you. Uh, we talked earlier and you weren't supposed to have such a good speech at the end. No, uh, as Vicky said, uh, Mike Andrusco. Uh, you know what? Uh, 20 years ago, me and my wife uh, moved here uh, from Ontario. Don't hold that against me. Uh, Alberta, with our family, you know, and Alberta's been awesome. Uh, it is now our home. We love it here. Our kids are here, our grandkids are here, and uh, don't regret that decision for a minute. It was the best thing we did. Um, for 13 years, I was a small business owner. We ran a family company. And then uh, in 2016, I, uh, I got an awesome job as a firefighter for the city of Calgary. Um, everything was going great, good job, nice benefits. 
and then, uh, then the mandates came. And then uh, I had to make a decision, um, and uh, that decision was to stand my ground and keep my integrity. And, uh, And then, uh, so I ended up losing my job over that, uh, and that's kind of what started me on the road to the, to the into the politics. I don't, I don't even like using that word politics or like the I said politician. This, that is definitely not. I don't want to be a politician. I just want to be me, and be uh, honest and sincere, and uh, mean what I say, say what I do. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, that got me on the road, and um, it's. Uh, it's uh, it's become so much more than that. It's not just the mandates anymore. It's it's the fight for everything that is true and right and just. I think we need to, um, as the family said, and I think family will be the same way. And all the other candidates, we need to get uh, all the values and the and the principles and the, the foundation of this country back to biblically based in the way it used to be. And I think through the Independence Party we can do that and the candidates that we have. I think we can we can change this country, we can change this province, and we can start by just changing the, the ridings that we're riding in. So that's where it all starts. And I am going for uh, Calgary Glenmore. Uh, so I am officially announcing my uh, my running there. so much for for coming forward and um, you know being true courageous people sticking to your integrity sticking to truth and sticking up for the people of Alberta now we have another very courageous um, person um, that's going to start us off today um, I've had the privilege of working with her I was you know I actually never met her but saw her at the beginning of these rallies um i would you know when the calgary rallies first started up and there was 20 25 of us marching up and down elbow drive she was one of those people and because of her courage and because of her beliefs and her integrity she's co-founded um an organization called lawyers for truth she is now also um putting her name forward as a candidate for the independence party in the most disparate three hills riding she is a woman of integrity, a woman of truth, and she will stand by her word. She will stand by her constituents, and I have no doubt that if the people of Old Stinsbury Three Hills vote her in in this upcoming election, that they will not be disappointed with the results or the representation that they'll get. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Catherine Kualichak. Vicki very much and thank you and good evening to everybody here in attendance. I am very much looking forward to um, hearing both Dr. Mackis and uh, Dr. Alexander and um, it's so nice to see everybody. So I've uh, prepared some notes for today and um, something that's been on my mind quite a bit lately has to do with this wokeness. And so I want to talk to you today about how this wokeness is influencing our legal system and why it's very important for us to start focusing 
on becoming lawmakers and electing competent and mindful and honest MLAs, rather than relying on judges to interpret the law and lawyers to advocate on behalf of his or her client. So, wokeism is a leftist political ideology born out of Marxism. Equity is part of the trifecta, diversity, equity, and inclusive, inclusivity that many institutions, including our own legal system, have embraced, especially recently. Equality is understood that all people should have equal opportunity. Equity, on the other hand, promotes equality of outcome. Equality is merit-based and does not distinguish between color, sexual preference, or lived experience. Equity is not merit-based and does distinguish between the differences as the moral basis for decision-making and opportunity. Equity is discrimination. Diversity and inclusivity are viewed by this movement through the lenses of race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation, etc., and round out this trifecta. All three components work together and are transforming our society, including our workspaces, and including our courts and institutions, rather than being merit-based in systems of blind justice, to it's no longer good enough to hire the best person, most qualified person for the job. Hiring the best person is not inclusive, thus saying the saying, go woke, go broke. The problem is our government and our courts have gone woke and our tax dollars are paying for it. <laughs> If Canada continues to go woke, Canada will go broke. What our society embraces now will lead to a very different outcome with big implications. In a recent Financial Post article penned by Bruce Party, who is an ex executive director of Rights Probe and a professor at Queen's Law University, entitled, quote, Human Rights Tribunal say Says the Quiet Part Out Loud, end quote, Professor Party uh, party draws to our attention a 2021 Ontario Human Rights Tribunal case where the tribunal dismissed a complaint by a white Ontario high school student who was denied participation in the Summer Up program which is open only to black students. The tribunal said, quote, we cannot, white people cannot claim discrimination, end quote and that, quote, an allegation of racial discrimination or discrimination on the grounds of color is not one that can be or has been successfully claimed by persons who are white or non-racialized, end quote. The University of Calgary Law School, in keeping with their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusivity, have created a special program for black student admission. Here's the process. But, and I, got this on their website, quote, we start by considering your application using a regular competitive criteria. If necessarily, if necessary, we will automatically provide you a second consideration if you self-identified as black in your application. This assessment will be completed by up to two members of the Black Students Admission Process Subcommittee and others. The second process is intended to ensure that those with similar lived experience to black applicants are involved in admission decisions and help applicants feel supported. The same competitive admissions criteria are taken into account in the second assessment. 
you will either receive an offer, regrets, or waitlist notification based on the highest score to give your application between the two review processes. So to me, what that means that if a person who is applying for law school on a merit-based system that applies equally to all students scores low, that they have this opportunity in the special category to get into law school on different criteria. Admitting students under this criteria, criteria will change the legal profession. And we have to ask ourselves whether or not one's lived experiences will be enough to, do the, to enroll into the university or to the, do the job that they are required to do um, if we overlook merit-based applications. Lawyers are similarly being forced into the funnel of diversity, inclusivity, and equity. In October 2020, the Benchers of the Law Society of Alberta created a rule which mandated professional development courses as a condition of lawyers practicing law in Alberta. If we did not take the course, we would be suspended. Approximately 50 lawyers in Alberta got together and signed a petition to call a special general meeting of the Law Society to put forward a motion to repeal the rule which many believed was outside of the scope of the authority of the benchers to make under the Legal Profession Act. For my entire career, which has spanned 20 years now, it has always been left to the individual lawyer to ensure that he or she is competent in their area of practice. The course, um, the course all lawyers were required to take focused on cultural competency and was called the PATH. This course was developed subsequent to the recommendations set out in the Federal Truth and Reconciliation Report that all law societies ought to educate their members with Indigenous history. We were required to complete the course which included testing of the course contents as a condition of our continuing to practice law. In other words, indoctrination. Rather than focusing on the petition to the repeal the rule that allowed the benchers to mandate the course, a full force attack ensued. Many of the petitioners were doxxed and labeled racist. Some even said we were violent. Every member who attended that meeting had taken the course, yet we were all labeled accordingly. The special general meeting was not about the course. It was about whether the benchers had the legal authority to invoke such a rule. Out of approximately 11,000 lawyers in Alberta, over 3,700 lawyers attended that meeting. 25% voted in favor of the motion to repeal the rule. 75% of lawyers voted to allow mandatory education. One of the Law Society of Alberta's key initiatives is diversity, equity, and inclusivity. This is what it says on their website, quote, the Law Society of Alberta acknowledges the existence and impact of systemic, systemic discrimination with the justice system including within the Law Society and the legal profession. We do this, uh, sorry, the Law Society views its core purpose as an active obligation and duty to uphold and protect the public interest in the delivery of its legal services. We do this through our regulatory objectives, one of which is to promote equity, inclusivity, and inclusion in the legal profession and in the delivery of legal services. As part of our commitment, it goes on, 
to take further steps to address systemic discrimination, the Law Society will lead by example. We have already started this work by ensuring that our benchers participated in training focused on unconscious bias and centering equity in their governance and decision-making roles and by mandating lawyers to complete the Indigenous cultural competency education through the path. The Law, end quote. The Law Society of Alberta and what looks like a majority of lawyers in Alberta support this leftist political ideology. The advocates of the rule of law are now advocates of social justice and don't think for a minute that this will not change the fabric of our society. Our Supreme Court of Canada has claimed to be the most progressive court in the world. Progressivism is described as, as claiming to improve human societies through political action. Throughout COVID, many courts preferred the government narrative over our own chartered rights and freedoms and the rule of law. Our judges and our courts have become social, political activists. They have deviated from the role of interpreters of the law to become integral in advancing what we colloquially refer to as wokeism. <laughs> The most egregious example of this includes compelled speech and instructing parents about what they may or may not speak to uh, with their children. This occurred in a case I was involved in where a judge forbid my client from speaking to them, to his children about COVID-19 or the COVID-19 job and also prohibited him from allowing third parties to also speak about COVID-19 to their children. Recall. That wokeism is a leftist political ideology born out of Marxism, aka communism. As lawyers, we are deeply aware of the interrelationship between the legislative branch and the judicial branch, meaning that parliamentarians and legislatures and representatives of government and the judicial function of judges are supposed to work independently. With the advent of the Charter, we envisioned that there would be very limited instances where governments could encroach upon our rights and freedoms, and we relied on the courts to uphold this, to prevent mob rule, and to protect minority rights, to protect all of our rights. We have relied on the courts to rule in this regard, but they, along with what seems to be a majority of lawyers now, are now social activists and mouthpieces of the government. The courts were thought to be the fail-safe to protect us from the government, but now it's clear that this has not occurred, and therefore, a solution to this problem lies with our legislature. A constitutional amendment is required to get rid of Section 1 and Section 15 of our Charter. Section 15 guarantees that every individual is equal before and under the law. Sounds good but does not preclude any law, program, or activity that has as its objective the amelioration of conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups. But I ask, to what extent does ameliorating the conditions of disadvantaged individuals or groups have an impact on other individuals or in our society? Something to ponder. Example, including individuals with substandard math skills, for instance, in, in the profession as engineers may very well lead to the deaths when their DEI buildings collapse. Yeah. 
Section 1 permits the government to abrogate our rights and freedoms, but only if it can be demonstrably shown. Our Constitution's preamble states that we are a nation that is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Relying solely upon the rule of law without incorporating principles that recognize the supremacy of God is perilous because without God, lawmakers can legalize anything, like murder, for instance, like was done in Nazi Germany and Mao's China and Stalin's Russia. In Canada, our lawmakers are trending in the same dystopian direction. We are witnessing their gleeful expression and promotion of MAID, medical assistance in dying. They have done this expansion and promotion with little public discourse on the morality of this program. The government offering to kill people just because they've had a bad day is a long way down the path to a genocide. Principles that recognize the supremacy of God provides for an objective standard of right and wrong, good and evil. Allowing our governments to abridge and abrogate our rights and our inherently given rights and freedoms displaces God as the lawmakers then assume the role. The Charter has become weaponized and meaningless as a protection for our rights and freedoms. And that is sad. It is for these reasons that we need to change who we elect and under what authority elected speak, people speak and vote. Currently, almost every sitting politician speaks and votes according to the dictates of their party, whip, or policy. They do not self-possess the authority to vote according to their conscience or the will of their constituents. We live in a system where democracy is practiced one day every four years. The rest of the time, our current party system is not practicing democracy. In fact, it is a de facto autocratic dictatorship with the full support of the media and their courts. Voting red, blue, or orange and trying to select the lesser evil is still voting for evil. This is why we are in the situation that we are in today. Government propaganda will have you believe in forceful <coughs> ideas that vote splitting and that one person cannot make a difference. This is demonstrably false. Some of the only bills ever to pass unanimously in Alberta legislature were proposed and brought to the floor by independent members, including the law brought by the then independent MLA Deborah Dreber. Independent members can also ask pertinent questions during question period. Questions, um, currently question period is a scripted theater of BS. They do not ask personal questions and subsequently there are no justifications given by the government. However, with an independent MLA, pertinent questions can be asked of the government. This is demonstrated by the only person currently asking pertinent questions in the ledge, Drew Barnes, who is sitting as an independent. So nothing changes if nothing changes. This means we actually have to change how we vote and who we vote for if we are expecting a different outcome. We have to vote for people who are not part of the, of the party that is bent on controlling them through a party whip. 
the Independence Party does not have a party whip. Ultimately, we need to change legislation to eliminate that party whip altogether and restore democracy to the other 364 days of the year. Voting red, blue, or orange is for voting for a broken system that has no will to change. So, if you want to see change and have democracy restored, you will have to vote for an independent candidate and for those running for the Independence Party of Alberta who are truly independent. listening to these messages and getting the awareness out there about the truth of our system. And the truth is, is that we do still live in a democracy. It doesn't feel like it right now because, as Catherine so eloquently pointed out, that the justice system is brought with corruption and, um, and unfortunately, <coughs> the legislatures are, are influencing our courts, influencing our healthcare, influencing our education, and that these policies that they're putting forward are hurting us as, as a population. <clears throat> so, sorry, I'm just gonna make this a little bigger because I, I can't read it. <laughs> anyway, for too long, we've been listening to the notion of relative truth. My truth, his truth, their truth. There is no real understanding anymore of a hierarchy of truths of one objective truth we all aspire to attain. So instead, we are living the warning of Friedrich Nietzsche's will to power. If there is no objective truth, then the truth becomes the truth of he who has the greatest power. We believe that this is a part of the multi-layered foundation that got us here. Contemporary Western culture in its attempt to kill God, has destroyed people's understanding of objective godly truth and replaced it with relative truth, opening the door to the will of power and to the oppression of the totalitarian rule. Our speakers today are going to address the lies of our so-called health authorities. They will address the lies regarding our political parties, governments, and even our constitution. The lack of truth and objectivity have harmed our people, families, communities, and country. I would like to introduce a friend who has chose to speak the truth despite the mainstream vilification of his pushback and valid, courageous questions. Dr. William Mackis is an Edmonton radiologist and oncologist recently making international news on his exposure of the deaths in Canadian doctors after the rollout of shots. Now unknown causes is the leading <coughs> cause of death in Alberta. He is also tracking sudden deaths in children and young adults, which is heartbreaking and frustrating. Dr. Mathis ran the largest nuclear medicine, I don't know how to say this word, they're agnostics, loot. I'm not even going to try to say the word. Basically, he used a very specialized program to treat cancer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'll actually practice that word for next 
program in North America in Edmonton, Alberta at the Cross Cancer Institute, sponsored by the University of Alberta and Alberta Health Services, authorized and funded by Health Canada. So without further ado, Dr. William Mathis. It's, uh, you know, it's an honor for me to be here tonight with you. And, you know, I've been on this tour for a few days and it was uh, such an honor for me to finally meet, you know, Dr. Paul Alexander and Dr. Roger Hopkinson, uh, true Canadian heroes. <laughs> you know, we've, had, we've had so few doctors stand up for us during this entire three-year fraud. This attack on our, just this three-year attack on us. Um, you know, the doctors were nowhere to be found. I know that there is one more doctor in this room who is a hero, and I'm not gonna name him because I wanna protect him from the college, and I wanna protect him from AHS. But there is another hero here among us. during this pandemic, doing things that the college would not have permitted him to do. He saved lives by not listening to the college, not listening to AHS. Woo! I want to start off um, by talking a little bit about AHS Alberta Health Services. I want to note that the most support I have received you know, these last couple of years has been not from doctors, certainly not from politicians, and certainly not from media who basically want to see me disappear. I've received the most support from nurses, from pharmacists, from all kinds of first-line healthcare, frontline healthcare workers, first responders who stood up to AHS and who risked their career, some of them losing their jobs, and they stood up to this beast of a healthcare system that we have, and they fought back and they said, no, I will not give these injections. I believe in bodily autonomy. I believe in the Hippocratic Oath. I believe in medical ethics, Just basic, simple medical ethics. And some of them have went to early retirement, some of them have left medicine altogether. Some of them have left the province, some of them have left the country, and I want to recognize them, their heroes as well. <laughs> Alberta Health Services is the largest health authority in Canada, one of the largest in North America. It has 105,000 employees. I can tell you confidently that Alberta Health Services is run by organized crime. And I can say that confidently because I come from a communist country. I fled communist Czechoslovakia. And the communists were members of organized crime. I lived in Montreal for 10 years. I went to McGill. And in Montreal, a lot of things are run by the mob. 
or organized crime. And I came here to Alberta not knowing anything about AHS, the politics and healthcare. And I came within two years, I realized healthcare here is run by organized crime. Now, you know, we've, we've been lied to about everything throughout the pandemic, but I mean, as Albertans, we've been lied to about our healthcare system nonstop by everybody, by the media, by the politicians. If you ever see anything about AHS or healthcare online in the media, it's a lie. It's a lie. These people just lie, lie, lie. We have 10 AHS executives <laughs> currently. Now, I was in um, Swift Current and Medicine Hat and Saskatoon, and I ran into a lot of people who said, didn't Danielle Smith fix AHS? I mean, she, she fired a bunch of people, and you know, she put some old guy in charge, the AHS official administration, didn't she fix things? And unfortunately, the answer is no, and I wanna sort of break it down for you what, what has actually been happening with AHS. Now, Danielle Smith comes in and she fires the AHS board. The AHS board doesn't do anything. These are patronage appointments, friends of politicians that get an extra salary, they meet once a month, they don't make any decisions. The AHS board has been dissolved many times in the past and no one even knew it. Nothing changed in the day-to-day -day functioning. AHS is run by these top executives, top 10 AHS executives, and then they have 3,100 managers under them. Wow. When I had looked at, I had actually managed to download one AHS organizational chart that had them all charted out all 3,132 AHS managers, and it was over 200 pages long. Just flowcharts of who manages who, right? That's what we have. We have a one giant rotten bureaucracy running healthcare. Now the incredible thing is that these people are rich, they're powerful, and this mafia, this, this organized crime ring is actually based in Calgary, believe it or not. Now, I'll list you off some names very quickly. Dr. Verna Yu, Dr. Francois Belanger, Dr. Ted Brown, Deb Gordon, Dr. Mark Jaffe, who is now our public health chief, who's an AHS vice president, who's been a vice president for many, many years, going back to 2012. We've got uh, Dr. Rolly Nickel, William Hondas, and then at the college, we have Scott McLeod, Michael Cafaro, and Craig Boyer. The last one being a lawyer from an extremely powerful lawyer family. Now, these people have been in control of our healthcare system going back decade, back to 2011, 2012. You can find them at the upper levels of AHS in the executive. And you think, well, wait a minute, we've had seven premiers since 2011, and these people are identical. They have not changed. In fact, there was a big reorganization of HS in 2013. And you know who was in charge of it? Dr. John Cowell, who Danielle Smith put in charge of HS now. They've done this before. This is the second time they've done this. 2013, he was put as the head HS official administrator. And they said, ah, we have too many vice presidents, executives, we gotta slash them from 80 down to 10, and they did this huge hoopla reorganization. 
and there were about 10 HS executives left. Seven of those HS executives are in power today running AHS. This is back in 2013. And then we wonder why nothing has changed. Then Notley comes in in 2015, and you know what she does? She goes to those seven HS executives and she gives them five-year contracts and salaries of five to $700,000. That doesn't include bribes. That's just sort of the base salary. And then they, they have their five-year contracts, which expire, and then Jason Kenny comes in and he renews all their contracts. Right? So these people have been in charge for over a decade and we wonder why nothing has changed in our healthcare system. So COVID rolls around and these people are making decisions for us. Dina Henshaw, hired by Rachel Mobley, right? And then Jason Kenney's promising us, oh no, we're not gonna do mandatory vaccinations, we're not gonna do vaccine passports, all of these things, and he just rolled over and allowed AHS to just steamroll over our population, over our rights, lockdowns, they've come after Christian pastors. How come it's AHS and AHS lawyers and public health officials coming after Christian pastors? What the hell is that? Right? In Alberta, of all places. It's because this mafia doesn't care who's in charge of the provincial government because they know they won't touch them. They get $20 billion every year from the provincial government. That is half our tax dollars. They get it and they turn around and they say, thank you, goodbye, now we're gonna take it from here and they call it their revenue. Our taxpayer dollars, AHS calls their revenue to do with that was as they please. So that is when nothing has changed. Seven premiers later, you know, we keep, we keep voting different premiers, different parties, NDP, UCP, doesn't matter. These guys are in charge. Jason Kenney wasn't in charge. Danielle Smith is apparently not in charge. These guys are. So, you know, that's, and these guys are connected to pharmaceutical companies. They give out multi-billion dollar contracts like the new Calgary Cancer Center. That was a beautiful $2 billion gift that these guys, as soon as Notley came in, these guys handed over to NDP's favorite construction company. So now I've been to uh, the HS website recently and uh, they updated their COVID guidelines and I thought, okay, well, let's see, uh, let's see what they have in store for us under Danielle Smith on March 2nd or 3rd just a few weeks ago. And one of the first things you'll find is that babies as young as six months qualify for COVID-19 vaccines. Right? With everything that we know that is happening to kids. And, you know, the carnage with the COVID-19 vaccines has been so horrific we have excess deaths of over 10,000, most of those in the last two years since the rollout of the vaccines. 2021, number one cause of death, cause unknown, 3,400 dead Albertans. This year, 4,000 to 6,000 6, Albertans will be dead. That's one in every thousand Albertans dead due to causes unknown, most likely the COVID-19 vaccines. 
And these guys are still rolling it out in babies as young as six months old. And I can tell you, HS knows that these vaccines are killing kids, that kids, high school kids are dying suddenly, they're dying in their sleep. Younger kids, now elementary school kids are dying in their sleep. Calgary boy, Eric Hammersham, hockey player, 13 years old. In November, he went to a basketball practice and he collapsed during the basketball practice and he died right there. It was in Calgary, right? Another boy, seven-year-old, Slade Smith, also hockey player. I was informed uh, that he did have two COVID-19 vaccine shots to play hockey. And that one day he comes to his dad and he says, Daddy, my heart hurts. And so, you know, they call the hotline, they talk to a nurse and, and they say, well, it's probably just the flu. There's a lot of flu going around. This was in November of this past year. And then within a day or two, he was dead. And I can tell you, AHS lawyers know all of this. They know it all. They are not in the dark. They know about all of these sudden deaths of kids that are happening. And I can tell you how they know. Because I subscribe them to my Substack. Each one of those AHS lawyers are subscribing to my Substack. And I'm sending, sending all this information to them. So they can't say they don't know. They're all subscribed. Everybody at the college, I subscribe them to my Substack. Here you go. Now they can't say you don't know. They know. They just don't care. They don't care. And they know that there's no one in the government who will hold them to account. You know, it's, HS has its meat hooks in the legal system everywhere. And when I tried to sue HS back, you know, six, seven years ago for shutting down my cancer program, I, I, I actually had money back then. I don't anymore. And so I had money to pay lawyers. And I went to the big law firms one after the other. I said, okay, I want to sue AHS. Oh, oh sir, we can't. Well, what do you mean you can't? AHS is our client. It would be a conflict of interest. I went to every major law firm in Alberta and I got the same answer. AHS is our client. We can't sue them. That would be a conflict of interest. They are literally legally immune in this province. AHS can kill you and get away with it. And that's the only institution that can actually do that. They can literally commit murder and get away with it. Because there's not a single law firm in this province that will take them on. Same with the college. And in fact, a couple of months ago, Trudeau announced, appointed, and Pastor Art will talk about this, you know, how judges are being appointed in Alberta. And Trudeau appointed someone, this young individual, to the highest position in the highest court in Alberta. The Chief Justice of the Alberta Court of Appeal. It was Justice Ritu Kular. I'm like, oh, I know that name. I've been in front of her. And she threw out my case against the college. But that's not the shocker. The shocker is that before she was appointed by Trudeau to be a judge, to be the top judge in Alberta, she was a lawyer for the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta. About five years ago, she was helping sabotage the medical license of Dr. Al Gandhi, an orthopedic surgeon who, you know, didn't get along with some 
anxious managers in his hospital. So they dragged him through a decade of legal proceedings, then suspended his medical license for three years and stuck him with a $1 million penalty. And she was the counsel for the college that did this to this doctor, and she is now the highest judge in the province of Alberta, appointed by Justin Trudeau. This is how our healthcare system works, this is how our legal system works. It is corruption upon corruption upon corruption. The other thing that you will find on the AHS website regarding the COVID-19 guidelines is that kids can now get COVID-19 vaccines without parental consent. Any child under the age of 18 that doesn't have parental consent, doesn't have the required form, signed by their parent, can show up. And one of these doctors who are obsessed with mRNA vaccines can determine that this is a mature minor and just give them the vaccine without informing the parents, without getting the parental consent. Now you will find the words mature minor on the AHS website. Right? Now, where does this concept of a mature minor come from? What's that? Pedophiles. Yes, well, okay, so fair enough. <laughs> but, you know, this, this concept of mature minor, they've been developing this for many years, and it was basically the idea that kids could make life and death decisions, medical decisions, without parental consent. And this is what the Trudeau government has been working on for many years. They've wanted to remove the parents from the equation. Get the parents out. Leave us with your child. Do you remember how many times uh, Justin Trudeau said, don't parents leave the room, I wanna to talk to your five-year-old. Oh. Hey, are you excited about the new vaccine? Huh? This is the kind of stuff that, that we're dealing with. These words, mature minor, are on the AHS website under Daniel Smith's government. Right, what are they doing there? Last month they rolled out this federal committee composed of mostly liberals, but a few federal conservatives as well, and of course NDP. They rolled out recommendations that made medical assistance in dying should be given to children if they wanted, and that they should have the final say if they are deemed a mature minor. So now kids, if they're depressed, if they're having a hard time, can go to one of these woke doctors that, and some of them really love performing MAID, euthanasia. They can say, listen doctor, I want to end my life. And the doctor says, well, yeah, you're so mature. I'm going to sign off on that. I'm going to end your life. I'm not even gonna let your parents know. I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna get parental consent. This is the road that we're on, healthcare-wise. Right? And again, this is in Alberta. Right? And so the federal government tabled this a month ago. They want the kids to have the final say in medical assistance in dying, and they want to roll this out within the year. And I've always felt that when it came to COVID-19 vaccine injuries, and the carnage has been horrific, yes. that the vaccine injured who are experiencing for themselves that their doctors have abandoned them and have left them to fend for themselves, are refusing to treat them properly, diagnose them properly, that in the future these doctors are simply going to offer them euthanasia. That's right. 
And you say, well, you know, you were one of those unfortunate, rare instances harmed by the vaccine. You know, we don't have much for you, but we have medical assistance in dying. Would you like to consider that? In fact, there's been a lot of pressure to get doctors to offer MAID in their interactions with patients. And again, this is, this is coming to Alberta as well, right? So, you know, I mean, the, the, the carnage of, of, of the COVID-19 vaccines has been horrific, and, and it's, it's worse than, than, you know, you can think of your worst nightmare. You can, you can imagine the worst case scenario you can, and I, I'm telling you, it's probably worse than that. You know, when you look at the excess deaths, all the highly COVID-19 vaccinated countries are suffering skyrocketing excess deaths. And I've sort of worked it out, it's on the order of about one in a thousand people have died in all the highly COVID-19 vaccinated countries in 2022 alone, one in a thousand. Now that may not sound like much, but in Alberta, that's four to 6,000 people. In the United States, that's 300,000 people. And you can, you, can, you can look at interviews with Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. Paul Alexander, Dr. Roger Hodgkinson, they will all tell you that this is a catastrophe, right? And that's just, we've lost one in a thousand people last year alone, and this trend is accelerating. And, you know, disabilities. Edward Dow, former BlackRock fund manager, has been pouring over insurance data, has been coming out with it on Steve Bannon, and he's talking about almost two million U.S. adults of working age who've been permanently disabled beyond what was expected. This is excess disability applications. And that works out to about one in a hundred people have been permanently disabled, working age people. And he compared people working age who abided by the COVID-19 vaccine mandates and said, okay, yeah, I'll take a shot to keep the job. And people who said, you know what, I'm not doing this. I, I will lose my job, I will drop out of the workforce, but I'm not giving up my bodily autonomy and I'm not taking these shots. And there was a 500% difference in disability between those two groups. Right? So one in a hundred people permanently disabled, and then about 10% of people have suffered severe reactions requiring hospitalizations. This was from the CDC, VSAFE data, about 10 million people recorded their side effects, adverse events. 10% had serious side effects. So the carnage is horrific. You know, I, t I talked about the doctors who are, who are dropping dead. They were just on our tour as we were kind of coming from Saskatchewan the last few days. There were two doctors that had dropped dead suddenly in Saskatchewan. But 132 doctors, Canadian doctors, died suddenly unexpectedly since the rollout of the vaccines. Physician mortality, Canadian physician mortality up 50% in 2022 compared to 2019. And the doctors are not waking up. And this is what blows my mind is that the doctors, they're still not waking up. And you will see them on Twitter, they're four jabs in, five jabs in, you know, they're saying, oh, I just booked my fifth jab. And, oh my God, they're, they're, they're still not waking up. And it's so, so frustrating. You know, um, I was asked today, why do I do this? 
why, you know, why am I out here, you know, speaking, telling you these things, you know, telling you these depressing things, why am I doing this, right? I mean, I don't have to, I mean, I could just keep my head down, stay quiet, and then, I, I, you know, I actually tried to stay quiet in the first year when the pandemic came out, and I, I knew it was BS, and I knew that, you know, the survival rate of this COVID-19 was 99.9% in, in healthy individuals, but I thought, okay, it's gonna blow over. Right? We'll, we'll get through this. You know, the year will go by. I'm kind of focused on my garden. I'm growing my raspberries, strawberries. We'll just kind of ignore it. You know, we'll, we'll get through it. I told my kids, you know, don't worry too much about it. Right? Then 2021 came along, and then they started rolling out the, the vaccines. And they rolled it out in everybody. They should have rolled it out in those who were at risk the most, according to what we knew at the time, of course, at this point. We know that they shouldn't have ruled it out in anybody. Because the vaccines have not saved a single life. There's no evidence to this date, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise, there's no evidence to this date that the COVID-19 vaccines have saved a single life. And they're trying to push the propaganda. Millions of lives were, sold, uh, were saved. 20 million lives were saved. This was in uh, Lancet last summer, paper that came out. Three million lives saved in the United States. Then this gang, of Canadian doctors and lawyers funded by the federal government came out and said, you know what, misinformation cost almost 3,000 Canadian lives and $300 million. You know what all these studies have in common? They're computer models. This is all made up bullshit. This is computer modeling where you can put whatever you want to get the outcome that you want. But the media carries this as serious research, right? They put this forward as, as this is serious research, this is, no, there's no evidence these vaccines have saved a single life. But when they rolled them out, I thought, okay, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna protect the people in long-term care homes, people who have multiple comorbidities, and that's it, the rest of us didn't need the vaccines. And I remember, I'll never forget it, you know, um, but this was spring of 2021, and I'm going to Superstore, and I see a huge lineup outside of Superstore, and I think, wow, okay, something is, you know, maybe there's a new lockdown, I don't know. And so, like a sheep, I go to the end of the line. And then someone turns around, and they're like, oh, you know this is the line for the vaccine. <laughs> right? And I'm like, are you serious? Are you guys insane? So, of course, I went and cut the line, and I'm like, okay. Good luck with that, getting your, uh, getting your vaccine at the superstore, right? And they rolled it out in everybody. And, and I thought, okay, well, they're going to do their bribes, and right? I mean, they, were, they got as many people as they could have. Get your one shots. We'll get 70%. We'll get herd immunity. Remember that? One shot is protective. Remember that? Just get that one shot and we'll get the herd immunity, this will be all over. Then of course they move the goalposts. Get two shots because this is a two-dose vaccine. Right? So I mean like, well you got one shot already, well you might as well get two. Right? And most people are like, well, you know, okay. I mean it's, you know, I don't want to just be halfway there. Right? So I'll get my two shots. Right? And then they said, well actually these, these shots are kind of waning. Right? This, this immunity wanes a little bit, so we'll get your booster shots, right? And I mean, I had kind of my big awakening in sort of the summer of 2021, and I realized I'm like, 
you know what, I keep saying, let's just wait this out, wait this out. And even with the vaccines, I told my wife, I'm like, oh, we don't need the vaccines, just wait it out. I didn't know these vaccines were gonna be killing thousands of people. I had no idea. I told my wife, I'm like, you know what, let's wait this out. I mean, what, we don't need this. Experimental uh, new vaccine. I got an experimental vaccine in my life. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I got the H1N1 experimental vaccine during the swine flu in 2009 as a medical resident. And I really didn't want to. But, you know, one day they told us at McGill University, they said, ah, this swine flu is, is you know, it could be super dangerous. You guys are all gonna go line up and get your shot. There was no discussion like, uh, do you want to get the shot? Uh, no, we're just, we're students, we're medical students, right? You're gonna go line up and you're gonna get the shot. And I thought, okay, I, I, I waited for a few, you know, I, I weighed the risks and benefits and I thought, okay, well, I spent my life working to this point. You know, my, my parents fled a communist country to get here. I'm not, I'm not gonna throw this all away. Be the troublemaker that gets kicked out of med school. So I went and lined up and I got my shot. I didn't like it and I, and I remember that feeling to this day, the pressure. So I know the kind of pressure that young people were put under with the vaccine mandates, COVID-19 vaccine mandates, and that pressure was criminal. Those yes. mandates were criminal. Yes. And so, you know, and I realized the summer of 2021, when they started rolling out the booster shots and they were talking about taking booster shots every six months, I realized these people won't stop. These psychopaths will not stop. And then I thought, oh my God, they're gonna come. They're gonna come after everybody. They're gonna come after the kids. Yeah. And that's why I'm doing this. I have kids, 12 and 10 years old. They came after my kids. They came after your kids. They came after your grandkids. And they rolled out this toxic vaccine when they knew that people were dropping dead left and right, sudden cardiac deaths. This was known and they, they rolled it out in the kids anyways. And I thought, well, this will be the line in the sand, right? The moment they roll it out in kids, 12 to 19 parents are gonna stand up by the thousands and protest and say no. And they're gonna close down the, the universities and the colleges. And they're gonna say absolutely not over our dead bodies. Didn't happen. And I thought, oh my God, these people, these, these parents are actually lining up their kids for these shots. And they wouldn't stop. And then it came kids five to 11 years old. And I thought, well, okay, that's gotta be the line in the sand. I mean, come on, like seriously, like, who's not gonna wanna protect their young kids? And sure enough, they rolled it out and 50% of these kids, five to 11 years old, have had at least two doses or more. And I knew, I'm like, at that point, I knew, I'm like, we're done. We're done, uh, we're, as a country, we're finished. Because if parents will not stand up for their kids, then what the hell are you, what the hell are you gonna stand up for? You're not gonna stand up for anything. They roll it out in kids under five years old, and now, literally on the AHS website, it's pushed for kids as young as six months old. 
can be surprised. They obviously didn't encounter any resistance every step of the way, no. right? Well, you know, well, we're, we're getting there now, right? So, for me, and, I, and, and you know, I want, I want to leave you with this. For me, the line in the sand was my kids. They came after my kids. They came after my kids' friends. They came after the kids in my neighborhood. They came after kids all over Alberta. And that was my line in the sand. And I said, no, no way in hell are you touching my kids. And I'm going to do whatever I can to expose you guys, yes. to expose you psychopaths. <laughs> and do, I mean, do whatever I can to stop these shots. And so that's what I'm doing. So thank you very much. God bless you all. And please protect your kids. Sometimes these conversations are hard. I think people are starting to be more open to having the conversations now, or at least that's been my own uh, personal experience, is that people that two years ago basically um, avoided me because they knew what I was going to talk about, because they were comfortable about me putting things in their face. Now they're coming to me and they're asking me questions. And they just want a little bit more information. But it has to be more than that. We have to stop waiting for people to come to us. We have to get this message out. Because this is killing people. And not just the vaccine. Our apathy is killing our society. As Catherine talked about with this wokeism, it's killing our family structure. It's our apathy in politics is building a totalitarian government that we're gonna be living under if we don't stop. And no matter what it is, if you know it's wrong, don't participate. I know it's hard. Like, I, you know, I, I, I got challenged. I, I don't know how, other than the grace of God, that I kept my job for three years. I fought with HR every six months about whatever the new rollout was, whatever. And I would actually start getting preemptive. I would see things coming and I would go sit in HR's office and say, well, just so you know, when this does happen, I'm not doing it. So you better decide whether or not you're firing me now. Um, but we're all capable of something. My job is not me. I like, you know, I work in oil and gas. I make good money. I like to make good money, but I also like living. And I also want to be an example for my children so that they know that they can stand for themselves. The Independence Party isn't just about, you know, becoming an independent nation. It isn't just that. It's about creating a self-reliant, self-accountable population of people that will stand up for themselves and stand up for what's right. Yeah. 
So I just wanted to mention that we are going to have a short break after our next speaker. So um, I encourage you to all um, go out into the lobby um, afterwards. Um, we've got some tables set up there, some merchandise, and these are the things that help us continue to be able to spread this message. So um, you have memberships obviously available for the Independence Party, and um, this is the way that you can help us, like I said, get this, like, we do not have bottomless pockets like the incumbent parties. And we do need your support in any way you can give it. We also have tons of volunteer with an election 66 days away from today. We're going to need door knockers. We're going to need people. If you have any political experience whatsoever and you know how to train people, uh, we're going to need people to help train our candidates. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting a lot of committees struck up over the next week and it's never too late to get involved. And your involvement will help spread this message. If we have an army of people instead of a handful of people getting this out there, guess what? People are going to start to notice. So anyway, I'm going to introduce our, our next guest. And like I said, I, sorry. Oh, yes. Sorry. So we've got um, Dr. Paul Alexander's book. Uh, we did sell out, I believe, out on the tables. But you can go online, right, and order this book on Amazon. So I encourage you, it's a great book. I encourage you to get your copy off of Amazon, but we have sold out. Oh, there's still some out there? Okay, there's still a few. So you better get, if you want the copy, there's still a few there. You better get out there and run really fast to get them. Barnes and Noble, you can also order this book from. Thank you. So, we introduce our next guest. Obviously, um, he's a he's pretty special um, to me and to the party. He um, won the leadership of the party in September of last year. He has been um, a lion. He has been a courageous soldier in in truth and creating justice um, for many of us. Um, he's obviously been through a lot of heartache and a lot of strife um, over these last three years and even be pr prior to that. Um, he has made it his life's mission to take care of those less fortunate than him. He feeds the poor every single week. He offers his uh, pastoring services at Street Church every single week, and he gives people hope. I remember, again, going to the rallies, um, you know, when we were small and as we grew and as we became this huge force of 20,000 people, at, you know, when we peaked out in Calgary. And I remember watching, before I actually knew Art personally, I would watch, and I remember thinking, who is this guy? I mean, I remembered him, like, you know, because he always had a street church. I worked downtown for my whole career, so I would see street church, but I didn't really, you know, pay much attention. It was just these guys feed the poor during the week or whatever. I, you know, I didn't didn't know much about him. I didn't even probably know his name until uh, until these rallies started. But I remember watching him and his passion and the fire. And the message that he would give would be so powerful. You would leave there and you would have 
chills running down your spine after listening to him speak at a rally. And he gave so many people courage when otherwise, you know, they were maybe doubting things and, and not feeling all that brave, but he was able to inspire so many. So, um, actually I don't even see him here, but uh, I would, oh there he is, <laughs> he moved. <laughs> anyway, I would like to introduce the leader of the Independence Party, um, the leader, the pastor for Street Church, and just uh, all around um, amazing person who gives hope and who inspires us to be better than ourselves. So here is Arthur Pulowski. so much. I uh, really liked when uh, Vicky said he's special. <laughs> you can add so much into just one word, special. I guess it depends whom you are talking to. I guess the NDPers. I guess the NDPers will have a different definition of the word special. And of course, uh, the traitors that we have right now, the UCPers, that have betrayed us. The people that unfortunately I helped to elect. So I'm as guilty as you are. Because I wanted to believe the lie. I know now that it was a lie. That voting for a lesser of two evils is better than not voting at all. Of course, since then, I refuse to vote if I do not have a candidate that is good, a candidate that aligns with my moral standards. I refuse to vote for evil. It doesn't matter how small that evil is. To me, those people right now are all the same. I mean, I don't know if you can tell, but my heels are, have been beaten um, for months now by the snakes and the scorpions and the vipers of all colors. Uh, it looks like wherever I go, there is another one crawling just to bite. So, first of all, I want to use this opportunity to announce my run for the position of the MLA in the riding of, are you ready? Yeah. In, a, in the riding of Calgary Elbow. And yes, if you have been around, you know that that's Ralph Klein's writing. And I find it fascinating, actually, if you think about it, because that man had a mouth. <laughs> I'm telling you, I remember. I remember this man that would walk into a room and either you loved him or you hated him. Everyone was stirred. And of course, right now, that reminds me of another man right across our border, you know, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, because right now we are living in China. But our neighbors in the United States of America, they had a taste of Ralph Pine, a different version, a bigger guy, in a form of Donald Trump. 
And then when this man shows up, and his family is the same way, it's actually extraordinary to watch them speak. Because he will tell you, they will tell you what's in, in their hearts. So, I don't know what the future holds, I don't know what is going to happen, I don't know how the whole thing will unfold, but we shall see. In two months, Albertans will be given an opportunity that you did not have for a very long time. To vote for a person, to vote for a team that will actually work for you. So I want to tell you, since I'm making this announcement, if elected, I will not be working for the party. I will not be working for the Independence Party of Alberta. I will not be working for any party except you. I will be representing you. I will not allow to be muzzled. I will not allow anyone to control me or to bribe me or to tell me how I can and about what I can talk about. If for an amazing reason I would be elected into this position, I will promise you this. And my wife always says, don't promise people anything. Don't be like, you know, career politicians. But I'll promise you this. I will drive those evil, wicked people crazy. <laughs> I will be poking at them every single day. I will be your eyes and I will be your ears. And I will be telling you what is happening behind the closed doors. Right now we have no one, literally no one that stands for us. No one that represents the people. We have sold out traitors, Judas Iscariots. We got cowards, chasing cowards. Pathological liars that are only saying what they are told, following the party line. After 24 years of doing what I'm doing, I think I have proven myself that I will not be your career politician. I am not politically correct. I refuse to be politically correct. So I want to use this opportunity to ask you to, to help us. We cannot do this alone. You know, when I was in a solitary confinement, when I was getting ticket after ticket after ticket, and when I was facing ten and a half years of imprisonment, and they would put me in metal cages, and they would drag me from one solitary cell to another one on concrete, and no washroom, no water, I came to one conclusion, that those people are like cancer. And they will never stop. They will keep spreading and they will keep murdering and they will keep pillaging until we cut them out. And how we are to do that? We have an opportunity in two months to stop the revolving door, to stop the insanity of doing the same thing, expecting a different result this time. You see, I've heard from the people that Daniel Smith, that... I'm a pastor and we are in a church, so... That flip-flopping political pancake, half-baked, 
I hear that she is going to save you. The very person that appointed into her cabinet the same evil, wicked people, like Travis Davis, like Tyler Shandro, like Copping, like the Nixon brothers, Bach or KC Madhu. That is the very man, when he was the Minister of Justice, that said this whole craziness has nothing to do with science. It's actually control. He was appointed to be the Deputy Premier. <clears throat> the boys from the Sky Palace hypocrisy right two days after I was released from prison with my brother David, where we spent three days and two nights on concrete. Only party at the Sky Palace. Drinking whiskey, copying Travis Taves, Chandro, which was greatly rewarded for his bloody murder. He has become the Minister of Justice. The very man that sent the Gestapo to my church arrested me and my brother David with Swatim. The same man has become my prosecutor. He is the Solicitor General responsible for judging me. I say quite often, if you don't want to believe Art Polosky, don't. Don't believe me. Just believe my accent. I know what I'm talking about. You see, I grew up behind the Iron Curtain. I have seen this movie before. And unless we change the script, you're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer greatly. You, you are going to suffer. Because I'll tell you about us immigrants growing up in that craziness. We survived communism. We survived the Nazis. Polish people survived Ottoman Empire, Genghis Khan, even the Vikings. We're going to survive those devils here today. But I'm telling you, I don't think Canadians are ready for what's about to come. I tell you that fiat currency is collapsing. I tell you that economy is collapsing. They printed so many trillions of dollars that this whole thing is falling apart. The domino is falling apart, and you, you will be suffering unless we change it. They're killing our industry. I say, let's revive the energy. Let's dig that black gold from the ground, and let's share it with the people. Why? Why? Only the few always benefit from what's what, what belongs to us, all of us. So I want to ask you to chip in, to help. You know, running a political campaign is not cheap. And if we are to do this properly, we need help. We need door knockers. We need volunteers. We need people to give so we can get the loan signed. We need you so you can go to your neighbors and say, hey, would you like to put it there? And you know, I will say to you and to those people that don't believe that we can make a difference, I say do it for the entertainment purposes. Because the moment I'm there, you will see Notley grabbing her transportation device, that broom, and she will fly out, out of the legislature. Just for that alone. Just for that alone, it's worth your money and your time. Imagine a man like me that is completely politically incorrect. In the middle of that sham, that sewer canal, poking, telling, 
praying. The first thing I'll do, I'll say, I will start the proceedings with a prayer. Half of the people will jump through the windows right there. So 50% of our opposition will be gone in the first day. Then we will work on the rest every day. Imagine media scrums. Someone that will be daily telling you what's really going on behind the closed doors. Imagine that. Imagine us telling you what's really going on. Do you know right now? Do you know what's happening there? I don't know. Do you know who was giving them orders to shut you down, to arrest you, to lock you, to muzzle you, to jab your children? Because I don't. I want to know. Would you like to know? Would you like to know who was writing the speeches for, for that crazy pathological Pinocchio liar that we had called, you know, health minister or Hinsha? I call her Pinocchio because, I mean, every single time she would go on television, her nose was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I would like to know who was writing her speeches, who was telling her how to lie to us. I would like to know. Well, we don't have that opportunity because they all are the same, corrupted to the core. But if you're like us, people that do not take the knee, they do not bow, we will be able to tell you what's going on. Um, is there a knee here somewhere? Outside, no, it's okay. Outside, there is a Nick, and he has the information how you can help. And please do. Everything comes. At this moment, we don't have millions of dollars like they have. They have been pillaging you for many, many years, for decades, actually. They have the resources. The UCPers have been pillaging us for decades. They have the resources. I've heard that they have $8 million at their disposal as we speak for this Greatest attack on our freedom ever seen on this side of eternity in this country. So he has the information. If you want to help, come and please do. Listen to this. How bad is the lie in the establishment? I just came across this quote and it shook me. Listen to this. I chose America as my home because I value freedom and democracy civil liberties, and an open society. George Soros. He also said, when I had made more money than I needed for myself and my family, I set up a foundation to promote the values and principles of a free and open society. One of the biggest bloody murder on earth as we speak right now, I don't know who is bigger, Adolf Hitler or George Soros, said those words. I am sick of listening to pathological liars, destroying our land, our future, and our children. They tell you one thing in the morning, and they will completely do an opposite in the evening. They say to you, vote me in, and I've heard that so many times in the past few months. When people would come to me and say, we have to give Danielle Smith a second chance. This would be her like 67th chance. By the way, she is a cross, I want to say cross-dresser, but she is a woman. She crosses the floor as she pleases. She is a flip-flopping pancake, 
because she will do what will forward her career. And she will tell you everything you want to hear. If you elect me this time, I promise you that I'm going to be different. And I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that for you. You see, I cannot do anything right now, but if you vote for me next time, then I'm going to do everything you want. So let me just take the same pitch. Okay? Will you? Are you ready? Mom, I'm going to give you a moment. Would you like one? Just vote me in. Sir, would you like a billion dollars? I'll give it to you. I promise. Uh, what about you? Would you want a new TV set? How about new shoes? Oh, you want a horse? I'll give you a horse. Would you like one? Just vote me in. Is that not what we have been doing for the past, like, forever? We get those devils in. They promise you the moon. And they, you know, they promise you a paradise. And they give you hell. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. There's no system in place right now that works, that we call, hey, you devil, you promised this and this and this, and you're not delivering what you promised, so out. We're going, to, we're going to hire someone that will actually keep his word or her word. But of course, that's not the system. We've lost accountability. Checks and balances do not exist. They all are the same. The media, the judges, Dr. Marcus was talking about judges, the just the justice system, I can't even say it without being sarcastic. Justice system is just a system. And it's so corrupted, it's not even funny. You know that our judges are not elected, but they are selected. They're being appointed by the politicians. They don't, they don't serve you, they don't work for you. Just like the police officers, the so-called peace officers. You know, we had 20,000 people on the streets of Calgary. We had 10,000, 15,000, 5,000. I have been organizing rallies, being part of hundreds of rallies. And I'm telling you, every rally was very peaceful until the peace officer showed up. And then the peace was gone. Why is that? Because they don't work for you anymore. The chief of police are appointed by the politicians. Therefore, the police officers are working for the politicians, not for you. This must change. How are we going to do it? Well, we need to elect judges. Judges from our neighborhoods. We, yeah. We need to elect chief of police. And we need our own police force. I'll tell you why that is very important. It's important because when those crazy people in Ottawa are going to decide to hurt Albertans, we'll have an army to protect Albertans. Enough of this abuse of power. They're treating Alberta like some kind of a woman that they can repeatedly rape over and over again. Ottawa is stealing from us, from our children. And they say to us, keep your mouth shut or we will hurt you even more. There comes a time when you have to say enough is enough. I'm not going to be subjected to this abuse ever again. You see, I believe in freedom. I'll tell you why I believe in freedom. Because my Jesus died for freedom. On that cross, the cross represents freedom. Freedom for all. I may disagree with your lifestyle. I may disagree with your coffee. How do you like your coffee? Black? You must be a racist. I have been accused so many times that I like my coffee white. Therefore, I am a white supremacist. The insanity continues because we allowed it. We allow them to do this to us. And I simply say, stop being politically correct. 
be morally correct, be humanly correct. You know what is the number one thing for Nazi's government right now? If I don't know if you're following their tweets, I kind of it's kind of like a horror movie telling you the truth. It's very painful. But I have to do it just to know how crazy those people are. The latest things that she is promoting left and right is abortion pills. That's the number one issue for the Northeast government. She says if elected, every woman will be able to murder her children for free. Seriously, let me ask you, is that the number one issue for you? Is that the number one thing for you? That's what you want your government to be forwarding? Drag queen perversion? grooming of our children and murdering of our children, the future of this country, is that what you want? Then I'm not your man. Don't vote for me. Vote for Notley. We must stop them. We must unite against them. If we do not, the consequences might be tragic. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. said, the ultimate tragedy is not the oppression and cruelty by the bad people, but the silence over that by the good people. The chief danger that confronts the coming country will be religion without the Holy Spirit. Christianity with, without God. And politics, politics without even mentioning of God, moral standards, truth. I was lately, repeatedly told to stop talking about God. I was told we don't want you from our stage to talk about God. We don't want you to mention the names of the villains. Don't talk about the jobs. Don't talk about what has been happening to us. Don't talk about those things. You see, those things are not very positive. Just focus on the positive. It's like saying to the people in 1945, to the Jewish people, tell them, you know what, let's just move on and forget about what the Nazis did. Let's just forget about it, okay? Can we just move on like a big kumbaya happy family? Can we just move on and unite again? One of the top Nazi leaders was Goering. You know, there was Goebbels and Himmler and others. Imagine Hitler is dead and all those people come back and say, we're now good Nazis. And we're going to serve you well. We're not, we promise, if you vote us in, we're not going to do a Holocaust again. Okay, we promise. We're not going to wipe out 60 million people all around the world. We're not going to do it because, you know, we've changed. We promise you, if you vote us in, we're going to rebuild a better Germany. What would you say you would laugh in their faces? Because what needs to happen is Nuremberg number two. That's what needs to happen. That's what needs to happen. Those people need to be accountable for what they have done to us. Justice demands restitution. If we are not going to do it, who is going to do it? For the great evil they have done to so many, so many, and to our children as well. We have been attacked by a great evil. Only the almighty powerful God can help us 
fights that great evil. And I want to finish with this. Probably my time is over. <laughs> Just over 100 years ago, William Boots, the founder of the Salvation Army, gave his last speech to a crowded Royal Albert Hall in London, England. In his final speech, he summed up his 60-year ministry with these words. I remember reading this many years ago, and God reminded, reminded me about his speech and hit me again, powerfully, between my eyes. Here's what he said. While, while women weep, as they do now, I will fight. While children go hungry, as they do now, I will fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, as they do now, I will fight. While there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight, I'll fight to the very end. Let me just paraphrase this a little bit. While mothers weep for the jobbed children, because they were caused, forced to take their beloved daughters and sons so they can go to a hockey game, so they can go to school, so they can practice. So while women, mothers, weep as they do now, and I'm telling you, they weep. Now, I will fight, and I will expose them, and I will talk about them. While children are dying, just like Dr. Mackey has been saying, is, you know, it breaks my heart when I listen to Dr. Mackey's presentation every single time. It disturbs me greatly and I'm very angry. I'm very angry because those are evil, wicked monsters. Monsters. They're not human beings anymore. They are monsters. And they're doing this to our children. And as long as this is happening, I will fight. While a good man like our friend Mike, the firefighter that was giving his life to save us. While a man like him lose their jobs and suffer because of this great injustice, I will fight. While there is one, even one person in our beloved Alberta that is being forced to do something against her or his convictions, I will fight. I will fight to the very end. Three months, three months later, the founder of the Salvation Army passed away. And he said also those powerful words. I'll leave you with that. We must, we must speak the truth. We must set the captives free. We must do what's right, even if it would cost us everything. So I want to thank you for your support. I want to thank you for your willingness to come and be counted in this awakening, if you will, in an army that is willing to bring those changes. Because I'll tell you, one man cannot do it.
Two people cannot do it. We need an army of Albertans to finally stand up like the people in France, like the people in Poland during the Solidarity Movement that said simply, enough is enough. Not an inch, not anymore. And I'm telling you, if we come together, it doesn't matter how powerful is the enemy, it doesn't matter how many guns they have, it doesn't matter how many tongues they can bring, I'm telling you, no one can stop the unified force of the people. Solidarity Movement is a perfect example that the people without guns and machine guns can paralyze the entire system and bring down the biggest empire that there was during that time. Millions of Poles took it to the streets, and I'll never forget that moment when tens of thousands of them faced armed vehicles, soldiers with machine guns and tanks, and they went to their knees, and they had a cross, and they said to the villains, you can shoot us dead, but in the end of the day, the truth will win anyway. And that's what I want to bless you with. In the end of the day, the truth will win. Actually, the truth is that we have already won. The enemy just doesn't know it yet. Be blessed. part of our team here at the Independence Party. He uh, is another warrior standing for truth and justice in this province and he is also running um, as a candidate for MLA in the Camrose riding. Um, it's scary but exciting times and um, yeah we just have to make sure that we, like I said everything that we do we have to we have to stop looking outside of ourselves for the answers because all the answers that we need come from within and come from above. So we want to be here as leaders in the community to help you to have a structure to follow. But we are not here to save you. The only person that's going to save you is you. So with um, I'm going to let Bob come up and say a few words, and he's going to uh, get you to our last speaker of the evening. So, Bob Leone, everybody. Thank you, everybody. 
Thank you for coming this evening. It's been a, a surreal journey for me to say the least over the past three years. Dane and I were ready to, uh, you know, start a new chapter in our life and, and start traveling and whatnot. But here we are, called to the duty of the day. Over the past three years, as the people of Alberta were being abused, several politicians said to me, what can one man do? Affecting change begins with the power of one. The power of one is in all of us. Our power, humanity's power, comes in standing together. When the power of one becomes the power of many. I'd like to acknowledge those Albertans who are suffering brutal injustice of the day before we bring up our keynote speaker. Our own leader, Arthur Pulowski, Derek Reimer, James Sowery, Chris Carver, Tony Olenek, Chris Lysak, and Jerry Moran. The last four Alberta men have been in Alberta prisons for over 400 days. These are the Coots Convoy Alberta political prisoners. It's been an honor meeting them and speaking with them. These are also powerful leaders that are heartbreakingly doing their sacrifice and their duty. But more people need to be aware of what's happening to these men and their family. It is a travesty. I'd also like to speak of another injustice, a betrayal of all Albertans. The restructuring of our way of life with the WF, the United Nations agenda. An agenda that the Liberals and NDP parties all embrace. An agenda that was brought to our nation and province by politicians we trusted the most here in Alberta. The Conservative Party of Canada and the United Conservative Party of Alberta have betrayed us all. It is an overwhelming betrayal. I share an article with all the evidence, and I urge everyone to understand that betrayal for what it is. And finally, the injustice of all those who are now facing the terrible outcomes of the COVID injections, including our children. I'm like Art. It's hard not to get angry when you hear Dr. Mackis's presentation. How can you not be angry? And I have a personal investment, and it's heartbreaking for me every time I say this, and I don't speak out of anger, I speak out of compassion and concern. That knowing that no Alberta MLA, no Alberta MP, speaks out against this great injustice. On November 10th, 2021, just before the rollout of the COVID injection for Alberta children, I arranged a meeting with 10 Alberta UCP MLAs. They met with Drs. Robert Malone, Dr. Paul Alexander, Dr. Peter McCullough was supposed to be there. He had a last minute family emergency, but Dr. McCullough was hoping to attend the promised follow-up meetings that never came. And our dear friend, Dr. Roger Hodgkinson. I have a duty to tell everyone who was in that meeting 
Some of them are my friends, and it's not easy to hold our friends accountable. I've held the line. I drew my line in the sand long ago. These, are not, these have not been easy years for me. It's been a burden. Those that attended the meeting were UCP MLAs, Nathan Cooper, Todd Lowen, Drew Barnes, Grant Hunter, Jason Stefan, Angela Pitt, RJ Sigurdsson, Dave Hansen, Peter Guthrie, and Shane Getson. The promise was made to me the following day that the research of Dr. Alexander and Dr. McCullough would be brought into our Alberta legislature. Studies which proved without question the lethality of those COVID injections. In a follow-up email from one of those MLAs, it was stated that those studies would become source documents and would open up to conversation. And that promise was broken. I was told the reason why. That they did not want to look like extremists. I slept on it. I was very angry. I never said anything out of anger. And it was said to me in an email the next day. For as heartbreaking, sorry, in a text, for as heartbreaking as it is to know that more people will be hurt, what can one man do? I'll tell you what one man can do. The power of one man. Dr. Paul Alexander is an epidemiologist focusing on evidence-based medicine and research methodology. Holding a master's in epidemiology from the University of Toronto and a master's degree from the Oxford University. Dr. Alexander is a former WHO consultant and senior advisor to the President Trump's administration during the COVID-19 response after the release of Anthony Fauci. He is a man dedicated to science, truth, and justice, and the overall well-being of humanity. I am very proud to introduce our friend, Dr. Paul Elias Alexander. introduction and uh, what can I say because um, you're so gracious with your words and uh, you know we came from uh, where we were in Buffalo and then we flew I went to Toronto to deal with some issues and then we flew here this morning and um, it's hard to follow William Marcus because you know we've become friends and uh, <clears throat> I've learned I deal with so many different doctors and scientists that but <clears throat> I've understood now he's like a he's a giant among them, and I'm very privileged as to his depth and breadth and uh, the work that he puts in. And I'm proud as a I'm a Canadian citizen principally, so I'm proud. And um, 
to be working with him, you know. And he used, he used the word bullshit. <laughs> and he used the term um, psychopath. So when I heard those words, I said, well, okay. <laughs> it's almost like he baited me. <laughs> because, you know, I, I like to dabble in that area. <laughs> those of you who listen to me, you know. I'm known as Dr. Lock Them All Up, as you know. You know, it was, uh, we were in Ottawa and um, I was giving a speech. And, um, you know, I, I went through a lot of the different science and stuff. And I said at the end, you know, it's time that we uh, we'd be willing to put a lot of our um, public health officials in jail. And we should put them in prison for what they did with the lockdowns. Because these were criminal people, you know. They costed a lot of lives. and. Um, I, you know, I, <clears throat> I was thinking, what do I talk about now, you know? I don't want to get too much into the chemistry and immunology and all of that, because I know you probably had enough of that for three years. But, so I just wanted to talk about, you know, from like a 50,000 foot generally to how we got here and what I think needs to happen now. Um, I think, first of all, I want to thank Bob and his, uh, and his wife and everybody for having us here and uh, for what Bob and they stand for. Because I am, um, you know, I understand it and, uh, and uh, I myself have a lot of reservations. Full disclosure, um, I've been in a lot of communications with the Daniel Smith people um, about, you know, capacity advising her, etc. And uh, that is such a political mess and hot potato that um, I'm not even bothering with it anymore. If they reach out to me, they reach out to me. If we continue talking, we continue talking, but I would help them, I would help anybody. If you're about saving lives, I would help you. Um, <clears throat> I like what Bob and his uh, the philosophy is, and um, the thing is we have a Canada to save, but we have an Alberta to save, and the, the truth of the matter is that the, the Alberta Health Services is just, is just such a corrupted, Entity and uh, the College of Physicians of uh, College of Physicians Surgeons of Alberta, just like the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario, these are just rotten, crooked, corrupted people. We have to burn those places down to the studs, take it down to the studs, and fumigate them, fire them. Extra you know, they sit up in their thrones and they pass rules and policies down to the doctors. They tied the hands of doctors during the pandemic. And uh, doctors then failed to exercise their own clinical discretion and decision making and did not treat people. They failed to treat the, their patients properly and people died. And um, there's blame everywhere. There's not just blame with the college, there's blame with doctors. Doctors in Canada. Doctors in the United States should hang their heads in shame and, and his, when history is written properly, they will be shown to be, we are in this situation because of our medical doctors. If our doctors had stood up, no government could have done what they did, but the, the, the doctors acquiesced and they benefited. They all benefited, directly or indirectly. So doctors are to be held accountable. And, and they come to me, they write, they call, they meet me all over and they say, Paul, you know, Paul, we just didn't know. Or Paul, I, I didn't understand, or I didn't read that paper, or, 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 or the CDC told me, or, or, or FAT told me, or Health Canada, they said, 
And I, we ended up in a very terse confrontation because I said, no. I mean, how could the Canadian trucker know more than you? medical school and it took the Canadian trucker to stand up and show the world about the science. The Canadian trucker was actually on the right side of science. How is that possible? Because, you know, it's a very difficult thing because, you know, sometimes people say, you know, you're tired and yeah, we're tired because it's been three years. Thanks, thanks that William is, is in the fight too. It's been three years, McCullough, Rich, myself, Dr. Zelenko passed, sadly, he was in the battle with us. You know, all of these, we have Howard Tenenbaum in, in uh, Mount Sinai in Toronto. We have um, all of these people that, that um, have been on the front line, has been tough. Um, you know, I, uh, this started <clears throat> for me because I was doing some work for a World Health Organization in 2019 um, as a consultant on things absent of COVID. COVID wasn't on the, the, the picture yet. Then about the end of 2019 to the beginning of 2020, WHO and Pan American Health had asked me to change my role to be their pandemic advisor. And you might say, well, you, Paul, um, why you? Um, COVID had just begun this coronavirus in uh, Italy and China, and uh, they didn't know what was going on, basically. and. Um, they needed, they needed people to help them wrap their arms around, try to understand the science globally. And what a lot of people don't know is that um, my doctoral research and uh, postdoc was at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. And that people who go to Harvard and Stanford and Yale are people who could not get into the program I attended at McMaster. I schooled under Dr. Gordon Guy who's the founder of evidence-based medicine. And I did, I continue to support them. I continue in that research capacity. It's the best research methods institution in the world, from Canada, and I'm very proud of it. And that was the depth that I took to the table and why WHO reached out to me. So I was working for them January, February, March of 2020. And then um, I got, communications from the Trump administration saying, you know, they've heard some stuff that I've said and some stuff that I've written and, um, on early treatment, on um, being against the lockdowns, against the school closures, etc. And they said, well, you know, it goes against what the administration, the task force had put in place, but they found it very interesting and they wanted me to come to the table to add some breadth. The bottom line, the conversation with me was as blunt as this, the first conversation in form. President Trump doesn't trust anybody there. He doesn't trust nobody in his task force. And he wants other people to broaden his table who are scientific and who will just be straight up with the science, help explain to the Oval Office, be the interface between the HHS and the Oval Office to help understand what the task force was actually saying because I mean, I was sitting down like you watching this task force every day on the television. It's like a clunk car. They were a bunch of idiots, what they were saying and what they were doing to the world. So I took the position and I went to DC. And uh, well, it, you've, you've seen me on the news, the Canadian news, the US legacy media savaged me. 
And, um, but the thing about it is I was right because everything that I said back then that they tried to destroy me over about natural immunity, about children and their innate immunity, about early treatment, about lockdowns, it's come full circle. And they all run into the hills now and they're all trying to, 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 to say, you know, don't blame me, you know, don't blame us, we were just following, we want amnesty. I'm saying no amnesty for anyone. No amnesty. So, look, I, I could talk so much, like William, we could go on and on because we heavily worked in the area. We're reading science all day. We're listening to everything we could. We're talking to people. So, but you probably have that out, out your yin yang, so you probably want to hear that. So, I just, I want to talk about the highlights for these last three years for me. So the highlights for me was being asked to go to Trump administration. When I got there, I, I stumbled, I, I, I fell into the deep state. And there is a deep state of bureaucrats and just subversive people. Their, their job was to destroy Trump, and they told me that bluntly. And they did a bunch of stuff to me to try and thwart me so I could leave Washington. You know, I went through a bunch of crap like they didn't pay me. A lot of the population and the world didn't know that I worked for the United States government for a large part for free. Because the deep state decided that to get me to leave Washington, they would not pay me. But I had already taken some furniture and rented a condo right outside the Capitol, opposite the Capitol building. So I, I kept telling myself, you know, and I had some of my family with me, I'll take it one day at a time. And uh, every day I would say, you know, this, this is it. I, I couldn't go no more because I was getting no income. Plus, I was dealing with the media, and the media was devastating to Trump, devastating to anyone connected to him. And, um, but I was there. And if you read the history properly, you would see that it was me and Dr. Scott Atlas behind the scenes punishing Fauci. We were punishing books, punishing the CDC, punishing the NIH, and they hated me. They hate, I was like the dead enemy in there, and I loved it because I hated them. And so I punished them all. As you, as you know, as you know, I left there in, uh, I think, the beginning of October, and the election was in November. Subsequent to that, I um, highlight, I, um, you know, it, it was so bad, you know, because just so you understand the legacy media, the things that they wrote and the things that they did, you know, um, I would get calls, you know, Paul, you can't speak to the press right now. Paul, you know, they have reporters outside your door, Paul. Paul, you can't walk down the street. Paul, don't come into the building today. You can't go into the HHS building. They have people waiting to, to, to interview you. and. They were doing everything they could to hurt Trump. And the reality about it is they wanted me on record to hurt him. And I wouldn't. I, I didn't do it then and I wouldn't do it now. I will not betray President Trump. I have nothing ill to say about President Trump. And I still support President Trump. And if President Trump runs for the re-election, I will do everything I could to help him get back into the White House. The thing about it is I remember I got a call from the White House one day and they said, you know, 
you're in the media, you're in our class, and you're in, so we want you to go under lockdown. We, we don't want you speaking to nobody. We're taking no interviews because Trump is campaigning, and we don't want anybody in the media but him. I was taking a lot of licks in the media, you know, and I wanted to interview. I wanted to, to explain things, you know, and um, talk about COVID, talk about the lockdowns. But I was barred from it, and then I got another call saying, you know, any minute now you're going to be off the, the media poll. Because I was getting, it was 24-7 in Washington, my face, my name. It's very hard when you're an individual, and I'm a very private person. I come from the islands. All of a sudden, you see people talking about you. You can't defend yourself because the White House, United States, telling you you can't speak. So they put you on a muzzle. And they called me and they said, any minute now, something is going to happen. And you're not going to be on the news anymore. And then everything will be fine. And you know, I didn't really understand because I was always a novice in Washington. It's, it's a very brutal, it's not, you could, I can't even describe what it is to live and work there. And then as they told me that, that evening, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And they got, I got a call from the White House and they said, you see what we told you? You just need to wait in Washington. Another story will come along that the media will go after and you will not be the news story anymore. And exactly as they said that, I dropped off with the front news. From then on, it was, Doc, was, was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who they're going to replace her with, etc., etc. So it was brutal because, you know, you isolated there, and um, those things you see in the movies about scandal and all of that, it is exactly what you see. And if you don't have your bearings about you, if you don't, that system will chew you up and and eat you, and you wouldn't survive. And, uh, and I have to tell you, had it not been for some very good people like Dr. Harvey Reich, who I'm very good friends with, he's Professor Emeritus from Yale. You know, he reached out to me in some of my darkest hours and called me and spoke to me and to help me step back and understand when he dealt with the media, how it is you just have to roll with it and uh, try to survive, but it's not that easy. And um, many times I didn't know if I could make it. And many times I didn't know if it wasn't for my, my family, so my wife was with me. I didn't think I could make it. Because <clears throat> when you're in Washington, and they put you on the lockdown, and you have the media on top of you, and you can't speak, and they're writing what they want, saying what they want, it's easy for you to give up. So I had some good people that got me through that period. And uh, I live to tell. There's so much I could talk about, so many things that I've seen that I know, but I can't. A president must have executive privilege. He must have confidentiality. There are things that I can never speak about, and I'm bound that I can't speak about them. And, um, but there are things that I try to, and I, and I go on the edges. When I left the administration, Dr. Peter McCollum reached out to me, this is another highlight of my life, and said, you know, Paul, we wanna um, put together this early treatment protocol with Zelenko and Rich and um, some other um, doctors and stuff. Would you be interested in uh, joining us? So I said, well, of course. And, um, 
So we wrote that early treatment protocol. That paper that was published, I'm the first author, McCullough's um, second, Zengo is a senior scientist. And every paper after that in early treatment, I was involved in writing it, this, helping design the algorithm. Of course, these clinicians had a lot of input because they were actually treating hot COVID patients. It's not like Fauci and these people who, these people are academic doctors. They, they've never even treated a patient, yet they make policy on what should have been done and they costed lives. When I, whilst I was doing that, I, um, I got a call from a person's, because what had happened in Canada with the trucking issue when Trudeau had done the, um, the, uh, the mandate, the vaccine mandate. So I was asked to go to the Peace Bridge in, in Niagara Falls. Uh, that spot between Canada and the United States to, to speak to the truckers, the U.S. truckers and the Canadian truckers. I went there and I was met with Dr. Julie Pones, who I met. And the both of us stood there, it was like about minus 50. And we spoke, <laughs> and we spoke, you know, there were exchange of hats, exchange of flags, exchange, just a, just a very cordial, it's a lot of celebration and then, you know, there was a lot of talk then that the uh, Canadian truckers are heading to Ottawa and were already in Ottawa. And um, they wanted me, they said, could you go tonight to Ottawa and speak tomorrow outside Parliament? So I said, you know, that's about six, seven hours away, but, you know, I, I said, okay. So we drove. And um, I originally went for one day just to give that speech. You know, they, I don't know those of you who were there. They set up all these trucks with this stage and stuff, and uh, I spoke, but I ended up staying for the whole three weeks to four weeks. Like it, it sucked me in, and I, I, I just couldn't leave. And, and I'm only saying that because, you see, the world, we're talking about it outside, and I say it every time I can, you know, the world owes thanks to the Canadian trucker because it's the Canadian trucker that had the backbone to stand up against Trudeau. It's the Canadian, Canadian trucker that showed the scientists what the science was, and we knew the science then. The, the, the data was already clear that the vaccine was not protecting the upper areas, that the vaccine was not stopping infection, not stopping transmission, not stopping replication. In fact, we were already beginning to see data that was showing us that the vaccine was giving the virus properties that prior didn't have, an infectious property, such that the vaccinated was beginning to become infected and hospitalized themselves. So it was a very challenging situation. And besides that, I was working with people like Good Van den Bosch, trying to understand science and the data behind immunology. And what we were seeing is that besides the harmful effects of the vaccine is actually driving the emergence of infectious variants, one variant after the next. So we went Delta, so we got to Omicron and all of the subclades. So the reality is we had a vaccine that was causing devastating harms and deaths and also causing infectious variant after infectious variant. In other words, this pandemic, well, this, is not, this, was, this was never a pandemic, whatever this was. This was not a pandemic. But this will never end. 
This will go on for 100 more years if these mRNA gene injections continue. These will, we will have infectious variant after infectious variant if they don't stop. And that's what we've been arguing. It's, it's because it's deadly, but also you're going to keep the virus circulating. When you roll out a vaccine, you are trying to stimulate acquired adaptive immunity. You want neutralizing antibodies so that the population, the people can develop immunological memory. That takes time. That takes some time to develop. You cannot roll a vaccine out into the teeth of a pandemic while there's infectious pressure and expect that that vaccine will work. You are going to be, in effect, bringing a leaky, imperfect vaccine that will drive natural selection to select for more infectious variants. In other words, the vaccine will fail and it, the infectious variants will never end. So we were looking at all of the data. So when the truckers came forward and said to me in Ottawa, why don't you stay and spend time? You know, day after day, and it was very cold, it was brutal, it was tough, but the truckers were the most peaceful. I mean, the, the, the mayor of Ottawa said that, that, that Ottawa, the crime dropped 90%. And that I can tell you I was there. I saw no violence. The, the, the truckers were among the most peaceful. It was, it was a, a beautiful time. And um, the problem for the government was as we spoke each day and each Saturday, particularly, the crowd was growing bigger and bigger. So they would have lost the narrative by around the fourth weekend. And we realized that we were doing the speaking. So we knew that the government was going to act. And as you saw how the government acted, and the government, Trudeau was brutal. He was not a statesman or a leader. He hurt Canadians. He, he punished them. He hurt the protesters. And I mean, I was there. I, I went into trucks at night because I was there, you know? went inside, I, I climbed in the rigs. Because I, I, I'm walking in the street and the truck, truckers will say, Dr. Alexander, I, I, I follow you, I see you. Come, come sit on in my truck, get some warmth. Because it was minus 35. So you know, I would climb up in the trucks and then I'm talking to them and, and while I'm talking, I'm hearing all sorts of chatting. And when I look back behind me, I can see in the rig behind me. I often see a woman sitting there with two, three little kids. And I, would, and I would look at him and he say, yeah, that's my wife. Because when I, when I can't drive, she drives. And she's homeschooling them right now. And that's what, and then this diesel in this truck is the only thing I have today. So what you're doing here is very important for us. And I, and I, and I got to see what truckers were really facing in Canada that they could not put their trucks down for two weeks to, to, to quarantine. They would not take the vaccine because they had natural immunity and they had a right to choose their own bodily integrity to take a vaccine or not. But I saw they didn't have much, yet they were willing to put, put it down and wage that fight. And I saw in the back of those rigs, now when I see a truck pass me on the road, I look at it very differently. I know in the back of that truck could have a whole family living. It was a very, it was, 
It was emotional. It was devastating to, to think. I was there. Trudeau and then the Liberal mayor were cutting out fuel because the trucks had to idle through the night. It was minus 35. So they couldn't turn the trucks off. I was there. So what Trudeau and they did was they, they banned the fuel from the trucks one day. It was a crazy situation. They were trying to freeze these people out. And at the same time, you had the situation in Coots. So I knew what was going on. And, 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 and historically, I was part of it, but I don't know if it's to save my life it, was, it would be the best part of my life because, because I don't have anything. It is a sorrowful situation what happened. And the truth of the matter is that uh, I think the world deserves, the world needs to praise the Canadian trucker because the Canadian trucker is who everybody else stands on today. The United States trucker stood on the back of the Canadian trucker and followed. And I joined that convoy too and I convoyed across America. As you know, when Trudeau and they did what they did on that day, you know, there was all kinds of crap in the media about a rescue. There was a arrest warrant, all kinds of crap. I, I, I didn't even know. I, I couldn't make sense of nothing. At that point, I had already crossed into the United States, and I got all these telephone calls from lawyers and people say, media saying, warrant out for your arrest. I said, for arrest for what? Well, because you were talking about the science and, and, and the government has reacted against you. So it was a very difficult period because, because I had to work with people to try and figure out there's an Ottawa arrest, a, a local arrest, a, a, a nationwide arrest. I couldn't even, I didn't want to come back into Canada for a bit until we sorted it out. I had people looking into the police force, looking into the, to the, to the, to the government to see if it was true. Up to now, it's not fully settled. So. The government, look what the government did. They, they froze your bank accounts. I mean, people had to take their money out of the bank. It was terrible what, what we went through in these last three years. And you know, I could have stood up here and talked about COVID. The bottom line is, nothing worked. Nothing worked. Everything these bastards did. Howard knew on Theresa Tam at FAC and Health Canada. Some of the most corrupted inept people ever. I know them because I worked with them. When I worked for the federal government, I was an epidemiologist for Canada for 12 years. I know these people personally. Nothing they did worked. Nothing. No lockdown. There's no study in this world, in this entire world, no evidence that any lockdown worked. No school closure worked. It just harmed people. No mass mandate worked. We have no science to show us this, none. No business closure worked. No shielding, nothing. Every single thing failed. All it did was harm people and kill people. And what they did was, look, we lost people. We lost whatever this was, this influenza-like illness causing respiratory symptoms in vulnerable people. The key statistics is this. The median age of death in February 2020 was around 82 or 83 with three underlying medical conditions. Today, the median age of death is still 82 or 83 with around three underlying medical conditions. So this respiratory illness behaved 
exactly how a respiratory illness is supposed to behave in vulnerable, high-risk elderly people with underlying medical conditions. Tonight, you go in some hospitals and nursing homes, we will lose elderly people to the common cold, to pneumonia, to flu. It is a part of life. This was never a pandemic. We should have never locked the society down. We told them, when we had sorted out the Great Barrington Declaration, we said, all we needed to do was isolate only sick, unwell people, period. That's it. Voluntarily, not, not by force. You only sick people. You never ever mass test asymptomatic people. You never quarantine asymptomatic people. You, you strongly double down, triple down, protect the vulnerable persons in your population. That's granny in the nursing home. But you let the vast majority of society live free. No lockdowns, no restrictions. I did a small program in biological warfare at Johns Hopkins, and one of my professors was Dr. Donald Henderson. Dr. Donald Henderson, for those who don't know, he, well, he passed in 2014 or so. He was responsible for eradicating smallpox. He actually delivered that program, and I attended. I met him. We became friends. He had actually asked me to read for a PhD in biowarfare, but I was going to McMaster. I made that decision. I couldn't get full funding in America at that point. But he wrote a seminal paper in 2006 that was our signpost. And in that paper he wrote for epidemics and pandemics that the least societal disruption is the key. That you don't lock down, you don't close schools, you don't do none of these restrictive policies. The only things you do is you improve the hand washing hygiene and you isolate only sick people, people who are unwell, no one else, with no disruptions. So we knew what we had to do. We had a paper that was translated from the Athenian plague 2,500 years ago. We translated it to English, and it's there, it's in script. Information from 2,500 years ago told us, they wrote, whoever what they were going through the Athenian plague. They said that people who were recovered would go out into the street and retrieve the new dead bodies. Because no man, para, who was struck at least once, was never struck again. That was natural immunity. That statement was natural immunity. 2,500 years old. We have another paper. Scientists looked at patients who were who survived the Spanish flu. In about 2010, they did a research, and they published. These people were about 100 years old in 2010. They were little kids in this, during the Spanish flu in 1918. When they looked at their blood and they exposed them again to the Spanish flu, the virus, they, fought, they were able to mount an immunological response. And it was shocking. They told us, Natural immunity was at least 100 years old, but we actually had evidence before, longer than that. So the bottom line is, what I'm trying to say is that we, we should have never done what we did to our societies. We had a ship 
in February 2020 out in the seas called the Diamond Princess. I don't know if you ever could remember that ship. That ship was our Petri dish. That ship told us every single thing we needed to know. Yet, we pretended it didn't exist. But what, what happened on that ship? There were 3,700 people on that ship. Of that 3,700 people, the virus burnt out at 19%. For a closed ship, nobody coming on, nobody coming. We had it out there for weeks and months. They were dropping food onto the top of the ship. Nobody could have entered or leave. Yet the virus had 3,700 people to infect and it stopped at 19%. Also, what did we find? We found that the median age on the ship was about 70 years old. So this was not a ship of young people. This was a ship of older persons taking some pleasure cruises. Had some underlying conditions too. So they were vulnerable. Yet, only 19% were infected and only about 7 died. 7 died. So a mortality rate way less than 1%, way less than 0.05%. What was stunning too is, we have data that showed us that husband in one of those cabins locked away. 5 by 5 cabin because they were quarantined. Hot COVID and he died. But his wife was with him and she never got infected. So that told us too that something was wrong here in the sense that our immune system saw this pathogen in some capacity at some point. So we had in important information that the media covered up and didn't pay attention to. That Diamond Princess was one. And uh, I'm just saying that, reminding you that um, everything that we did was wrong. From my point of view, and this is my point of view, we should have never locked the society down because this was never a pandemic. We had some issue. We had something that we were dealing with, and we're still not clear exactly. We still not clear on the timelines. Right now, I'm working with different research groups. We went from February 2020 as origin. We went back to December 2019. We got, we, somebody gave us data September 2019. We now have data March 2019. If you talk in March 2019, you know this was circulating in 2018. So we're going to find out that this was circulating way before February 2020, what does that mean? That means that in time you'll come to learn that the vast majority of the population, probably globally, had some level of immunity to this. We know that. So we're going to learn a lot of things in time. I am part of investigations in the United States Congress, the House, and um, giving questions and stuff and moving forward. We don't know how, you know, the United States government in the House, the Senate, becomes like a, a dog and pony show. They're more interested in embarrassing each other than really getting accountability. We don't know. Maybe if Trump comes back into power, we'll probably get the accountability then. We don't know. It's like... It's like Daniel Smith. I, don't, I, I told Bob, I, I don't want to come up and... I don't want to get into your but I stand with Bob Baylor because I like what he's saying. I like the idea. Um, I see what the HHS has done. And um, I know what the colleges have done here and the harms. I understand how many people have died in Alberta needlessly under the Jason Kenney administration. So I am saying that we can't trust anybody. We can't trust none of these politicians. So we need 
to consider alternatives. We need to consider alternative people. We have to. And, um, you know, we have a situation now where three years, all we have to show for it is debt. We have debt, destruction. In the administration, I'm telling you, I, we had parents from different states. You know, the media wouldn't cover it because Trump was in, was in campaign mode. So the decision in Washington was we would lock it down and not report the actual data. I knew because the data was coming up to our office. We would spin it up to the White House. We had parents walking into emergency rooms, husbands and wives, the wives telling the doctor, doctor, I haven't been working for eight to 10 months. I've been beating my husband every day, violently, abusing him. And he's telling the doctor, doctor, I, I, I have to say myself too, I've been laid off for a year, I have no income. I've been beating my wife mercilessly. But they're standing there with their child in their arms. They say, but today we crossed the line. We beat the child. And we think we might have killed our child. And the child is on responsive broken bones. That's what this pandemic did. That's what, this, this is, that's what these beasts did. These beasts who lock us down, who lock schools down. We had children in America, 8, 9, 10 years old, I know because we had the data. Parents found them hung. They hung themselves. They couldn't cope. That's what this lockdown did. That's what these beasts did to us. They did that in Canada. Trudeau they did that. Kenny did that. Doug Ford did it. They all did it across America. So we must never let them get away, ever. My view, my view is, is, is clear. I'll even advance Arturo's view. I will, I will take everybody, Howard New, Teresa Tam, Doug Ford, Jason Kenny, I take them all into a proper tribunal in a courtroom. I want to go in the United States, I want Fauci, Burks, Francis Collins, every one of them, everyone. Albert Bula from Pfizer, Stefan Bansel from Moderna. I want them all sitting down in a proper courtroom. I want them to defend themselves with proper lawyers because we are not a kangaroo nation. We are good governance societies. We are the West. It's America. It's Canada. So you have the right to defend yourself. When you show us, show me the data that you made your decisions. All your policies, including this fraud vaccine, the so-called vaccine that has killed so many people. Show us. And if you could show me the data and show us data in front of proper judges, I say we let you live a proper good life, give you a pension, and let you go free. Praise you even. I will stand up on a hill and praise you. But if you show, as we know, that you costed lives, that your decisions kill people. I want us to clean you out financially. Take every cent. And with the proper judges, if the judge says we need to put imprisonment on the table, I say put it on the table. And I say put all of these people in jail. I'll jail them all. 
every one of them. Because they really hurt us. They hurt us. They hurt us. They hurt our parents. Marcus knows. Marcus knows that once Granny had left that old age home, well, it was an insane policy to take her out of the hospital and put her in the nursing home because she was infected, she was vulnerable, and we dislocated her. She was on a death spiral right there. You put her in that old age home, she's going to infect everybody because chances are she's infected. Then in reverse, you took Granny from the nursing home and you took her to the ER. Why? Because in Canada, 80-85% of the people who died in Canada died in old age homes, in nursing homes. That was a sin. The, the, the record in Canada and Ontario and these places is devastating. How come so many of our elderly died in our old age homes regarding COVID? You know why? Because once they took her from the old age home and she touched the emergency room door, her 28-day mortality went up 40% instantly. So she, she began to die. Then they sucked her into the black hole of COVID, the COVID protocol that Marcus knows. The COVID protocol, what was the COVID protocol? The COVID protocol was denote her as positive, knowing that these beasts were using a false positive PCR test that was over cycled. Anything over 24 cycles was false positive. We knew we were detecting viral dust, viral fragments, old coronavirus, not culturable infectious pathogen today. We knew that we were closing society down. We were taking kids out to school and shutting down businesses, cycling at 40 and 45 in Canada. Everybody then would be positive, which is what they were doing, because they were creating a false pandemic with the PCR test. This was a false pandemic driven by a fraud PCR test. The, 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 the investigations will show that, and we need to hold them to account who did that. But what did they do to Granny? With that false positive test, they put Granny in the back room behind a glass window. And her family couldn't see her. Nobody couldn't touch her. We have videos of people undercover showing us that you pass by and you see Granny laying down there with a nice blanket. No, 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 no. When you peel that back, Granny was laying down in feces, maggots, because nobody would even change her. These beasts. What did they do? They sedated her with that with my dazolam and diamorphine. Drugs, drugs that you be that you used to put somebody to death in the execution chamber. You you paralyze her. What happens then to an elderly person who's isolated? She was isolated. Grandma was isolated, he was dying. Isolation kills an elderly person. You don't even need to harm them physically, just isolate them. Isolation will kill an animal in the laboratory. We used to do it when I was an undergrad. You isolate mice, cats, whatever you want to do, you will see what will happen to them. They will get deranged and they will begin to die. That's what we did. So we pumped Granny with midazolam and diamorphine. And when we were finished doing that, she was malnourished and she was dehydrated. Malnourishment and dehydration kill a lot of our elderly people. We punish them for that. We need to punish. Punish them. Punish Jason Kennedy for that. Punish Doug Ford. Punish Trudeau. 
Punisher more in America. Our, our parents and grandparents suffered. Our co-workers, our friends suffered in that medical system. Isolated, malnourished. How could you feed them a comatose person who's on my dazzling? How could you feed them? How could they drink? And then when you finish doing that, you pump in her with remdesivir, the standard of care. Then we knew the data. It was a failed Ebola drug. It was kidney and liver toxic. It was killing her. But she didn't care because she was getting a lot of money. The hospitals, the CEOs, the doctors, everybody. Everybody was incentivized. And then, if the remdesivir didn't kill her, you intubated her and you put her on the ventilator. When we found out that the ventilator killed 80 to 90% of the people on the ventilator, why? I'm not saying the ventilators have utility, but most of the people who operated these didn't know what the hell they were doing. And they were blowing holes in these people's lungs. We killed. Most of the people on ventilators died. How is that possible? So every single thing they did to Granny killed her. They murdered Granny. The, the, the Alberta government killed people in the hospital. The Ontario government killed people in the hospital. We cannot stop investigating these people. We cannot. We have to hold them to account. We have to jail them. I really mean it when I say we must never end until we put them in jail for what they did. So, I know, I know you guys have been here long and uh, I was talking to William William, you know, what should I focus on because you know, we could talk about so many things but the question is where do we go from here? Where do we go? Well, you can't sit back whilst we, William, me, whoever out there, McCullough and stuff on the forefront banging away because we are banging away every day. You have to go on with your lives too. You have to support us. <clears throat> But you have to go into your lives. You have to live your life. You have to improve your lifestyle, your well-being, healthier lives, etc. You have to. We have to continue sharing information, having these kinds of discussions. You have to share information. That's how we move forward. And the most important thing is we have to get accountability in the courts. But very importantly, to end tonight, because it's a juncture we're in, we're going to have to get some accountability at the ballot box. And that's where people like Bob and they come in. We need to take back. Any government will find a way to accrue power and take it from you. Any government. And once they take that power, I have realized they will never give it back to you. Never. I, I can't see a, an example where a government has taken power for something and then reversed that. That is the new baseline. So. You need to take it back in the courts and take it back in the ballot box because they will maximally abuse us. And if we think we could comply our way out of this and say, well, let me just behave myself like what we did. Let me just accept the lockdown. Let me just put on this mask. Let me just take the vaccine. It's all a lie. You can't comply with it because then they will abuse us more. We need to stand up. We need to find good people who are willing to go run for office. Good leaders, honest people who are not into it just to benefit their own pocket. You know, we need recall elections. We need that on the table. So anybody go to any office, after two months, 
You fool around, we, we take you out. We reverse it. We call. So we need all of those things. But I think tonight I just want to say I appreciate the chance that I had here. I support Bob. I support this movement. You know, I, I don't want to stand here and say anything negative against Daniel Smith. You know, because I, I just want the best person to do the best for Alberta and for Canada, whomever that is. Right now, from what we were told before, looking on, I'm very, very concerned and jaded and unhappy with what I've seen. So me personally, I'm looking around. I like the messages coming out of uh, Bob and Day and his outfit. And um, you guys are going to have to make up your mind based on, you know, your own decisions. So I just want to say tonight, you know, thank you very much. And um, we're just going to continue waging this battle because we're still in the fight. And um, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you. For, to all of our volunteers for making this happen because this doesn't happen without them. You know what? You don't have to leave things up to other people to get things done. Figure it out what it is that you can do. Figure out the parts in your community where you can help and just do it. Stop waiting on someone else Obviously, we would love to encourage you to get involved with us and help us get through this next election. Help us get some great candidates in that door that will be there to represent you. Yeah. Again, thank you so much for being here. I just want to leave you with this, with this last statement. You know, one of the things that um, I remember Trudeau saying when he first came into office, I think even in 2015, 2016, Justin Trudeau said that Canada didn't have an identity. Well, Canada may not, but Alberta does. And let's represent that. So good night, everyone, and thank you so much for coming.